I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? I think a lot of us take it for granted when we flip a switch, turn on the dishwasher, run a load of laundry, or turn up the heat. The power is just there, and we don't think about it until it's not. We've seen a lot of people do some things to keep warm. We've seen people grab uh, some of their paintings off their walls, their children's blocks and toys, throwing them in the fire pits in order to keep themselves warm. Texans were freezing just a few weeks ago, and they're still recovering from a storm that knocked out power for days. Dozens died. Canadians have their own tales of chaos and calamity. From 2003, when the lights went off in the eastern part of the country and northeastern United States, or the 1998 ice storm in Quebec, Ontario, and New Brunswick. Millions of people left cold and in the dark for weeks. 35 people died. Climate change is leading to more frequent, sometimes more ferocious storms, forcing a rethink. Energy security and electricity reliability are fundamental to the way in which we move forward on climate issues. And yet there is one place in Canada that's way ahead on meeting those dual challenges. And if the power goes off, it doesn't go off in my community. This week, we look at how to keep the lights on and emissions down in the face of climate change. What happened in Texas? An unprecedented winter storm, a deregulated energy market, and no backup system probably wouldn't happen in Canada. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention and learn from the crisis. Monica Gattinger is the director at the Institute for Science, Society, and Policy at the University of Ottawa. Monica, hello. Hello. Let's start with Texas. When you look at the failure and what happened there, what connections do you see to the challenges Canada is going to face in the coming years? I think uh, Texas is hugely uh, important. It's a devastating reminder of the importance of energy security uh, when it comes to people's daily lives, the functioning of the economy. Uh, and more, and in this case, in particular, electricity reliability. So, you know, we're going to see more frequent extreme weather events, which was certainly what uh, was the issue in Texas. And unfortunately, that situation, even though it wasn't the quote-unquote fault of renewables, uh, some folks who oppose climate action are actually leveraging that situation to try to call for less climate action going forward. And I think there's some really important lessons there for Canada in terms of ensuring that we've got energy security, electricity reliability, and making sure we align those energy and climate objectives. Now, to a degree, this is personal for you because you've had your own experience with a, with a great big power outage. You were in Ottawa um, when the, there was the huge blackout in 2003 that, that wiped out power in the northeastern United States and eastern Canada. Tell me where you were when the lights went out. So I was one of the 50 million people or so affected by that power outage. So I was at home. Uh, it was the afternoon, uh, beautiful summer day, hot, uh, as I recall, and the power went out. And, you know, of course, the first thing you think is, well, this is just a local power outage. I was 
going to go pick up my son from uh, daycare. But in the meantime, you begin to hear on the news, oh boy, this is a little bit more than just a local power outage. This is a widespread blackout. So for us, that meant, you know, no air conditioning, no fans. Uh, it was pretty warm. Uh, meant, you know, learning how to make coffee in the morning on the barbecue and the like. Uh, but of course, we made it through just fine. Uh, that wasn't certainly the case in terms of the economic impacts more broadly and there were deaths uh, that are attributable to that blackout. So we were without power for a few days. This was not something that had any lasting impacts on our lives, but as a researcher, I turned a lot of my attention to uh, studying these issues uh, in the years that followed. Yeah, I was going to ask you, this happened during a, a particular time in your life that made a difference to your academic work going forward. It did. I mean, I've always been an energy uh, geek, and a lot of my work actually at that time was focused on Canada-U.S. energy relations. Uh, You know, in the aftermath of that blackout, Canada and the United States established a joint task force to uh, investigate the causes of the blackout and to identify ways of ensuring that it wouldn't happen again uh, in the future. So let's jump forward to today. How well prepared is Canada's electricity grid to deal with climate change in the coming years? I think overall fairly well. Here in the Canadian context, we're used to extreme weather. So in general, the Canadian grid is actually really well positioned for these sorts of challenges. There are other challenges, though, related to reliability going forward. As we take action on climate change, what we're trying to do is reduce the emissions profile of the electricity system. So that means bringing on additional sources of power that are non-emitting. In many instances, that's things like solar, and wind power, which are intermittent. So it means you know, bringing those into the grid in a way that we can balance off the intermittency. So when the sun isn't shining, the wind isn't blowing, that you've got other sources of power or storage that can kick in. You know, In terms of trying to decrease emissions of the Canadian economy writ large, electrification is a hugely important area. So increasing the use of electricity in areas where it hasn't been used up until this point, transportation, manufacturing, heavy industry and the like. And then it's also about institutional innovation. So, you know, we have policy and regulatory frameworks that weren't necessarily designed for pursuing environmental objectives. So those are going to have to innovate quite substantially in the years ahead. It's a twin challenge to make sure the grids are resistant and to expand the capacity of the grids to lower emissions. So you tell me, how do we get there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, one of the really important things that I see that's happened is that people are beginning to see that, right? There's greater recognition. You know, I've been banging this drum for quite a few years now to say, you know, we really have to align these energy imperatives and the climate imperatives in order to get lasting change. And then it's about, okay, how do you go about doing that? And that requires some changes at the policy level to make sure that we've got the kinds of policy frameworks that will be supportive of the innovation, that will be supportive of the regulatory agencies that are going to be making lots of the decisions. But most of all, I think it really gets to this issue of we need to solve for climate and other imperatives like energy security, affordability, reliability. But again, I'm optimistic because I see increasing recognition of the need to do that, to get this right. It really is going to take you know all hands on deck. So you'll never have to make coffee on the barbecue again. 
<laughs> well, I wouldn't go quite that far, Laura. I probably will at, at some at some point. But I think that you know what's really important here is to try to make sure that as we move forward with climate, and clearly that's a hugely important imperative. It's one of the grand challenges of our time. But doing so in a way where we're solving for other imperatives on the energy front as well. So we can get that ongoing progress that people can have confidence in. Thank you so much for describing it all so clearly. You are most welcome. It was a pleasure. Monica Gettinger is the director of the Institute for Science, Society and Policy at the University of Ottawa. Now, if you have memories of the blackout of 2003 or the ice storm in 1998, drop us a note. The email address is earth at cbc.ca. We would love to hear from you. Francis Bradley also watched what happened in Texas very closely. He's the president and CEO of the Canadian Electricity Association. Every time we've got a major event that takes place, there are lessons learned. And if you don't implement the lessons that you've learnt, you're opening yourselves up to, to challenges in the future. And so, in my view, that's the problem that we saw in Texas. Uh, it had been identified they needed to winterize their plants. It was unfortunate, but not unexpected. Bradley says Canada, too, has had to learn some tough lessons about the fragility of its own power supply in the face of fire, flood and ice. You know, we've seen a series of weather-related issues in this country, whether it's the Fort McMurray fires in 2016, the flood uh, in Calgary in 2013, or going all the way back to the ice storm in 1998. Each one of those events resulted in lessons learned, and it resulted in changes in terms of how we operate. Reacting to weather events is just one part of the picture as the climate shifts. Cutting emissions out of the power grid, using clean electricity as much as possible, is the other. And to be able to do that, we're going to need every non-emitting and low-emitting gigawatt hour of electricity that we can get. What Francis Bradley wants to see is a mix of large urban and smaller community plants. And there are places in Canada where you can already glimpse that future. Kanaka Bar, northeast of Vancouver, lying above the Fraser River, is a case in point. Uh, so I've just said, hi, everybody. My name's uh, Chief Patrick Michelle from Kanakabar. Chief Michelle's band struck a deal in 2014 to sell hydropower back to the provincial utility from its own river-generating station. And it's using the money to help residents prepare for the uncertain future that climate change will bring. Hello, Chief. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me on. Can you tell me first, how is Kanakabar affected by climate change? Well, like any British Columbian community or Canadian community, we're experiencing on-the-ground effects of extreme weather events. The extreme uh, weather events, of course, uh, flow naturally from uh, an increasing global temperature. So whether it's forest fire, wind events, uh, flooding, drought, um, uh, allergens in the air, uh, smoke particulates in the air, all those things are happening. Those are physical um, also has an effect on the ecosystems that are here in terms of the fish or the, the birds or the animals or the plant life. And they're struggling now because they're, they're just not capable of transitioning with uh, the growing impacts that we're experiencing. Well, so you, you have a hydro project that started running in 2014, but the first conversations about it started decades ago. Why was hydroelectric power something your community wanted to invest in? 
Um, growing up in uh, BC's Fraser County region uh, all my life, what we've certainly experienced, like many other communities, is boom and bust economies. So we watch the mining come and go, we watch forestry come and go, we watch agriculture come and go, we watch tourism come and go. And so we're well aware that uh, the pursuit of economics or economy um, had this sort of boom and bust scenario. So in 1978, um, about two years after our residential school had closed here, we were looking for a way to create a sustainable and somewhat predictable future for, for all of us, uh, that people who were alive at the time and for the children that were coming. And so we were monitoring economic development initiatives across Canada, and we found that the renewable energy sector um, is predicated on sustainable use of land and resources, so you can actually have an economy uh, without extraction and exploitation. And so in 1988, when BC Hydro and the province of British Columbia decided to open up its uh, grid to independent power productions, uh, in 1990, we applied for a water license and the rest is history, so to speak. And now you're reinvesting revenues that you've earned from the project into other kinds of renewable energy, including solar. What is the solar power used for? Um, what we have at, uh, currently, we have operating 12 solar projects, and so we power our admin center, we power our health center, we power our maintenance center, um, we power the common area meters in some uh, one of our housing units, we power our security cameras, we power uh, and our weather stations. Wow, that's a lot! And then you've also got wind power. What what role is that playing? Well, we can harvest that resource without extraction, and we did so uh, quite well for you know for millennia. And then when we saw was the technology was confirmed in terms of uh, globally, um, wind power has been used globally for years. Um, uh, so is hydro, so is solar. So the technology has always been there. It's just matching the technology with the resources that are site specific to your community. And that's what we started to do. So the hydro project journey builds capacity within the community to see that technology married with the resources that are here can evolve. So with the two wind towers, we use uh, vertical axis wind towers to power uh, street lamps. So you've got all of these sources and they're helping to keep the lights on in a new affordable housing subdivision. Why is that type of social investment in the community an important piece of planning for a future that would be affected by climate change? Well, one of the things that uh, we here at Kanakabar, we take as a given is that climate change is real, that the extreme weather events that are starting to occur are occurring in greater frequency, duration, intensity, and as a result, it will impact the systems that we, most British Clemens, even Canadians, take for granted. So resiliency is our goal, is to ensure that if there is an extreme weather event, that the the response, the the anxiety and stresses of response is minimized. And you do that by building into your build structures, whether it's your water lines, your shelter units, or your energy systems, resiliency. So if the, and I'll give I'll use energy as an example. We're connected to BC Hydro's grid here in, at my community. And if the power goes off, it doesn't go off in my community. With uh, harvesting uh, the sun, the wind, and the water at a much smaller scale allows me to continue to power uh, the infrastructure that we have. And with battery storage, we can keep the power on at night. And so the battery storage keeps us powered until the sun and the wind picks up the next day. So the concept is resiliency. In a bad weather event scenario, we do not have to go without. So but you also have a plan to keep 
Kanaka Bar going and potentially even neighboring communities if the weather knocks out your hydro grid. You've, you've built something called three of these resilience centers that are also powered on renewable energy, and they have backup batteries. Tell me why those centers are important. Well, yes. So what we have now is since June of uh, 2020, we put onto our website uh, the must stop, rest stop, the Upper Kanaka Community Building and the Crossing Place Housing Complex as three uh, identifiable resiliency centres. So the first resiliency centre is at Upper Kanaka. It represents a 3,000 square foot community building, which again um, is powered by solar at this moment and with battery storage. It's grid connected so that it's open 24 hours uh, a day, seven days of the week, available to the community, just for regular community use. But in the event of an emergency, the solar and battery packup continues to, so it stays cool in the summer, it's warm in the winter, the air filtration keeps the particulates down, and it's not the whole community, just this one center. Um, the Wi-Fi and the cell service will continue to operate there. So that's resiliency center number one, and I'm just waiting on the occupancy ticket. The, uh, the batteries came in yesterday. Resiliency center number two is 24 new affordable housing units that will be built down in Lower Kanakabar. And so hydro will be included in the rent here. And for example, a brand new one bedroom will be $400 a month with hydro included. Same scenario. If the power goes out, so if, if our uh, energy grid goes down, these 24 shelter units will have the same resiliency in terms of air and food and water and shelter and energy and communications with battery storage. So we're expecting to break ground on that this summer, well, hopefully with uh, completion in December. And again, that will come with 100 kilowatts of uh, solar and I believe three wind towers. And again, with the new water lines that are going in here, we'll be able to use micro uh, hydro as well to power the batteries as well as the residents. Resiliency number three, we're calling the must-stop rest stop. I just uh, engaged an architectural firm last week to come up with the design. So it'll be right on Highway 1. So it's available to any person who is passing through British Columbia, or well, through Kanaka Bar and Highway 1. So again, it, it's, it's a commercial retail center. It's approximately 4,000 square feet where, again, air, water, food, shelter, energy, communications will be maintained. And if you need to spend the night, there's your shelter. And again, if the grid goes down, the eight electric vehicle charging stations will still be able to power your transportation system. Because sometimes we don't know how often the grid's going to go down, but if we do know that if, it, if it's going to go down with greater frequency, duration, intensity, three separate locations at Kanaka Bar will still be, have the energy necessary to power the, the technology of today. Can I just ask you something? You're doing all of these things, which sound like all the right things to do. Um, but in Kanakabar, you're doing it on an admittedly small scale. Do you see a way that what you're doing there could be scaled up for, for other bigger parts of Canada? Absolutely. Um, Kanakabar has been um, obviously speaking with its MLA as well as its MP and engaged at uh, uh, national conversations and, and provincial conversations on uh, successful preparation for the environment and economy of tomorrow based on smaller scale and diversification. You can't continue to keep putting all your eggs in one basket. I mean, if one big project breaks, then a lot of us suffer. If one little project breaks, then it would be very localized to that one area. Now, Kanakabar has adequate wind, sun, and water to actually power the region. So I can power basically from the town of Lytton down to the town of Hope. 
That's the type of power that exists in my community. But that same opportunity exists with Indigenous communities throughout Canada. And I would also go on in terms of the municipalities. The hard part for communities is to make this a priority. It's hard for provincial and federal governments to make it a priority. Resiliency is what is required as a result of climate change. And we need to prioritize uh, infrastructure investments today. So, and I, I use the exact analogy: Why would you build a water line and fire hydrant while your house is burning? Isn't it better to do make proactive investments today, so that uh, the, the 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 trauma, I'll call it, of tomorrow is avoided? I'm curious to know um, how your the residents of Kanakabar whether they've changed their their lifestyles, their points of view, their feelings about living there over the time that you've brought all of these projects on stream? Well, absolutely. In the 70s, um, Kanakabar and the entire region here was not a pleasant place to be. A culture of despair had basically enveloped the entire region. I mean, the boom and bust economy, um, everybody was looking elsewhere for salvation. And we basically said, as, as a community said, no, salvation lies right here. Uh, the Indigenous peoples of Canada are beaten and broken but survived, but so did the land and resources. So if we can just change the way we think and change the way we do, we'll be okay. Um, our youth are the ones responsible for the weather stations. They designed it, they built it, they operated it. Our youth are responsible for the solar projects. They designed it, they built it, they operated it. And at the end of the reason, why? Because it's their future. We empower our youth. And as for the generation of my age or the uh, generations above me, they're just overwhelmed. They're just, uh, it's hard to describe the peachy keen feeling you get in your, your tummy. We reverse the adverse effects of colonization through the renewable energy sector. We're going to be okay for the next hundred years. Yeah, I just don't know how to quantify that. Yeah, I think you've described it pretty well, even if you can't quantify that. There's something that you can quantify, though, and I think a lot of Canadians would be interested in hearing this. What is your uh, monthly hydro bill like? Eight bucks. <laughs> that and was it, during the coldest part of winter. <laughs> <laughs> In the summer, it's zero. Okay, well, that is definitely something to smile about. Chief Michelle, thank you very much for telling us what you're doing at Kanakabar. You're welcome, Laura. Thanks for having me on. Patrick Michelle is the chief of the Kanakabar Indian Band, and that is where we reached him. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. Local power can provide a path to sovereignty and self-sufficiency, and in some off-grid remote or island communities, it is the only option. But there are benefits to going the other way, connecting the already huge power grids that serve entire provinces. Brett Dolter is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Regina. Hello. Hi. So, Brett, we've heard about small-scale grids for smaller communities, but you are talking about something much larger for Canada. What's your vision? 
we're, we're talking about a vision of Canada that has much greater connection between provinces and our electricity systems. So right now, provincial electricity systems are, are largely their own little fiefdom. And some, some of the provinces actually have a lot of electricity trade with the U.S., so they, they'll trade down south. Um, but those connections are much larger than any connections east-west. And so what we're talking about is a vision of Canada where we connect provinces with more electricity transmission, and, and we use that to build more of a, a national grid, or at least regional grids. Okay, but how does that help provinces get off of fossil fuels? Well, if we, if we look at the electricity systems we have in Canada, we have some provinces that have really great hydroelectric resources. BC, Manitoba, Quebec, Newfoundland, Labrador. These provinces generate almost all of their electricity with hydroelectricity, so they don't have a lot of greenhouse gas emissions associated with that production. Then we look at the provinces that have some work to do. Uh, we have Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and, and Ontario to a certain extent. And these are the provinces that still have fossil fuel generation. And if we're going to have a Canada that uh, has zero emissions, well, nationally, we've got to think about how do we get to zero emissions in electricity. And that means getting those provinces to zero emissions. So you know, how are we going to get Saskatchewan and Alberta there? Well, they could do it on their own. They could, they could build their own uh, capacity and, and come up with their own plans. But we find that it's, it's cheaper to get to zero emissions for Saskatchewan and Alberta uh, if they coordinate with their neighbors and if they can build transmission connections to those hydro-rich neighbors. So being, being better neighbors in a way, sharing, sharing east-west um, in a way that we sometimes already do north-south. Now, now, people say hydro could make up the slack in solar and wind power during certain times or seasons. But um, I'm wondering if you can explain this idea of why this would work. The, the hydroelectric dams in your mind are, are, are something like a battery or the reservoirs are. Yeah, that's right. So we have these hydro facilities that are built. Uh, we also have a lot of potential for wind energy uh, and solar energy. The Great Plains has incredible wind, uh, which means we can have really low-cost wind energy on the prairies. But we all know that you know wind is only available uh, when the wind is blowing. So we have to have a backup for that. But if we can link to our neighbors, so if Alberta can link to BC, if Saskatchewan can have better links with Manitoba, then we can build out that wind, that really low-cost electricity, and connect to the hydro facilities in our neighboring provinces that provide the backup. And so when the wind's not blowing in Saskatchewan, we can call on the hydroelectric facilities in Manitoba. They can send power over to Regina and keep the lights on for us. At the same time, if, if we want, we could then be building even more wind than we would need within a province and export that over to the hydro provinces, let them hold back some of their water in their reservoirs and in a way save it or you know use it as a battery so that at a later time when electricity is needed, they can let that water through uh, then. This sounds like it makes a lot of sense. So why don't these kinds of macro grids already exist in Canada? Well, they are expensive. So there, there's a cost to build transmission. A recent study looked at the cost of building a, a link between Regina and Winnipeg. They pegged that cost of 2.5 to $3 billion. So you know, these are these are not uh, small price tags. So we've got to think about how we're going to pay for them. And in doing so, we also have to think about who's going to pay for them. Uh, and there's that negotiation that has to happen that has been a barrier to, uh, to getting them built in the past. 
we have this seam, uh, called seams in the electricity planning world, uh, between Alberta and BC on one side of the seam, and basically everything east of there on the other side of the seam, where we don't trade immediately uh, the power uh, as you could between uh, Alberta and BC, uh, because there's different phases in the electricity. So they've got a, some special technology that's needed, or at least you have to go to a, a DC type of a, a trading uh, link in order to pass between Alberta and Saskatchewan. And so maybe that's been that's been an engineering barrier. Uh, maybe it's also been a mental barrier to block trade. That sounds more like a political barrier than a mental barrier. <laughs> well, well you know, it, it's interesting because that seam exists all the way through uh, the United States as well. Studies in the U.S. have actually been conducted to see how much could they save if they linked the two systems. And they're talking about savings of billions of dollars by connecting these regions and allowing electricity trade. So the same story holds in in Canada, we could have that uh, lower cost by connecting these regions. But it strikes me that there is politics as, as part of this. I mean, don't don't provinces and political leaders aren't they self invested in this idea of, of having uh, being masters of their own domain in that sense? Well, yeah, that that seems to have been the case. I mean, we, we've got this potential, but it it hasn't been reached. You can imagine that if you're trying to pitch people in Alberta that, hey, we should buy more power from BC, you'll probably get a pushback that, oh, why don't we build our own capacity? Why don't we have those jobs and that economic opportunity within our province? So when we're talking about connecting systems, are we going to be able to have a two-way flow of benefits and economic opportunity? So in Alberta, can we ensure that some of our uh, jobs are going to be kept here? You know, we're going to have the coal plants closing, but are we going to be able to build more wind farms so that we have more wind facilities, more solar farms? We're still producing electricity. We still have jobs and economic opportunity, but now we're trading. And so we're exporting sometimes to BC and down into the States, and we're importing as well. When we look at this, we look at it from a modeling perspective, and we say, okay, if we had one manager controlling this whole thing, what would be the best thing to do? And that one manager would connect the systems. But yeah, we have real world politics where we have to uh, negotiate and and come up with uh, a real plan to do it. But there's benefits to trade if you can make this happen. And so it's all about how do we split those benefits? How do we share those benefits? But couldn't one manager be the federal government? Well, I, I think this is a great opportunity for the federal government to step in, play that facilitating role. Uh, and you know, maybe the provinces don't like when the federal government gets involved, but I think they do like if, if the federal government brings a big uh, check along with them. So the, the role of the federal government might be to help pay for these connections in order to you know, ensure they're built because it'll help Canada meet our emission targets, get to lower emissions at a lower cost. And so if the federal government can seize that opportunity, we can get these transmission lines built. Okay, well, we'll see if anybody takes your advice. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. Brett Dolter is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Regina. So there are a lot of ideas out there about the big and small changes we can make to diversify our energy, share it, and in some cases simply to use what we have more efficiently, especially when it comes to some of the older grids. Toronto's electricity infrastructure is easily over a century old. That is Jessie Ma. She's a research fellow at the Centre for Urban Energy at Ryerson University in Toronto. In the past, the philosophy was to, as the community grows, the electricity system infrastructure also grows to match the community's needs. However, today, with a fully built environment, 
we don't have the same ability to build new transmission lines or new stations. So it gives us the need to look to our existing infrastructure and figure out how to use the same infrastructure more efficiently and more effectively. There are many ways to do that. In Ontario, for example, rates fluctuate with demand. And Moss PhD work looked at one idea in particular. So one example is demand response, which is when you pay a consumer not to consume. Okay, pay someone to turn off the switch. That sounds a bit counterintuitive. But in this case, Ma is talking about a big user, maybe a factory or a manufacturing plant. They can suck up lots of electricity, putting a huge load on the grid. Ma says there might be times when it makes more sense to pay them to use their own backup power instead. Now, that sounds odd, I know. You and I coughing up cash so big industrial users will unplug. But Ma says there can be times when it makes sense. So a good example is when prices are high for electricity. Imagine a hot summer day. Ontarians are cranking up the air conditioning to stay cool. And that jump in demand means a bigger electricity bill. Ma says that's when it's cheaper to get big consumers off the grid. And it turns out what's better for your pocketbook can sometimes be better for the planet too. It also reduces our environmental footprint as usually those expensive peaking plants are fossil fuel-based. Jesse Ma is a research fellow at the Centre for Urban Energy at Ryerson University in Toronto. And that does it for us this week. So I'm wondering, do you like the podcast? If you do, please go ahead, share it with friends. We would love that. The team this week on What on Earth includes our intern, Serena Renner, associate producers, Rachel Sanders, and Jennifer Van Evra, producers, Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our engineer is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.